Holy crap. A new introduction to the podcast. But for real, though, the rest of it will come after this. I just want to thank you guys. Um, all the five-star ratings that we're getting on all the podcast apps is awesome, and I appreciate it when I hear people telling me that someone else told them about the podcast. So you guys rock. Uh, listen to commercials or skip by them. It's cool. And your episode's on its way. Today's podcast is brought to you by AssaultLimited.com. Even when you aren't saying anything, you're saying something. Let your gear say the right thing for you. That's where Assault Limited comes in. Assault Limited offers tactical versions of things you use every day. The Assault Pen is a great quality, intimidating looking pen with a pinpoint tip used for self-defense or to break glass. The Assault Spork has so many different tactical uses, we only have time to highlight a few. It's a spoon, a fork, a wrench, a carabiner, and a bottle opener. The possibilities are endless. The Assault Pencils and the Assault Straws... Well, they both look pretty badass, and they both tell political correctness to take a long jump off a short bridge. When you need things and you want them to be the best quality while issuing a statement to anyone else who sees, look at AssaultLimited.com. Also sponsoring today's podcast is Urban Savage, U-R-B-N-S-V-G.com. The best quality apparel available, American-made t-shirts and sweatshirts that fit great with the quality that will outlast the creepy battery bunny. The Date Night Tee, which is the badass's version of the subtle embroidered logo t-shirt that so many of us grew up with. And the hats are 100% American made, not just embroidered here like so many others. Ooh, and those sweatshirts are so damn comfy. The next time you're thinking about scoring a new piece of gear, remember to check out urbnsvg.com. Last but not least, today's podcast is brought to you by A3 Body Protectant. A3 was designed when Martin noticed that Hawaiian surfers who spend their entire lives in the sun had radiant, healthy skin. After plenty of awkward questions about how seriously they take their skin care, he learned the secrets. Hawaii's best secret is now available at A3Equip.com. That's A3 equip.com a3 is a truly natural cream that can be used as a skin lotion a lip balm a hair conditioner honestly anywhere you want to keep moist and healthy get yours today at a3 equip.com all doctors to the er do these guys have any idea what they are talking about talking about talking about Get squared away. Spiritual. Get squared away. Emotional. Get squared away. Mental. Get squared away. Physical. The podcast that'll help you get squared away. All right, we are back, and uh, you just got back from L.A., brother. How was that? That was good. That was good. A little bit lag, so, you know, I had to take my old man nap today. Literally just woke up like minutes ago. <laughs> so God, keeps I it lo- interesting. I love a good nap. Yeah, you say you, t- you take two naps sometimes on some? weekend day week weekend days. I've been known to take three. Why? What is your your thing with naps, dude? Naps feel great. I f- I feel as good after a twenty minute nap as I do after an eight hour night's sleep. Really? Yeah, man. You ever get that? Uh, wake up from a nap and you feel like you're like. You don't know where you are. 20 minutes, the magic number. Any more than that, it's probably, uh, yeah, it makes you feel a little woozy. 20 to 30 minutes is the magic number. You go over 30 minutes and that's when you start getting too deep into sleep and your body doesn't, doesn't know it's a nap. It thinks you're going to bed. Yeah, that's probably it. So, well, adjust. We'll make this one, we'll make this week easy on you. You, you, uh, (laughs) your, your old man brain can take a, can take a light break. So, I need to start out by, 
I guess kind of apologizing because I've been working on this, these notes all day, and they're going to kind of make, I mean, they're going to make a lot of sense because this book is amazing and the info in here is blowing my mind. But they're also, there's also going to be some stuff where I sound like I'm rambling and it doesn't seem to coherently make sense, but stick with me because it will wrap back around and make sense when we get towards the end here. And this is an exact example of why we all need to keep an extremely open mind because, um, ironically, I came across this book by just searching for a few other books that this author wrote. Never even heard of this book before. The book is called The End of Craving. It's by Mark Schatzker. Mark Schatzker wrote The Dorito Effect, which I've talked about on this podcast a few times. And I thought, hey, you know what I want to talk about today? I want to talk about the, uh, or this week, I mean, I want to talk about The Dorito Effect. And so I was like, I'm going to go back and, and find a summary of The Dorito Effect because I've read it twice now. So I thought maybe if I just find a highlighted summary, I could put together some notes and we could talk about it. Well, then, you know, one thing leads to another and I come across this book, End of Craving. And I'm like, hey, why not? It's, you know, I think it's five hours on audiobook if I had it at 1.4 speed, which I usually do 1.2 to 1.4 speed. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to dig into this and I'm going to try to get through this to do the podcast on this because it, it seems like it has a lot of the applicable information from the Dorito effect, but um, has more information and updated information. So I get into it, and the first thing that this book does is completely debunk all of the stuff that we talked about from Gary Taubes last week. And it's not that Gary is wrong, and that's not what any of these studies that he first starts talking about in this book do. But what they show is in a clinical setting, the outcomes of a low carb versus a high carb diet are exactly the same. So the first study that was done uh, by Kevin Hall is 17 obese men in a clinical setting. So this is this is watched day in, day out, um, 24 hours a day. There is no ability to cheat, right? They measure these. 17 obese men, they measure their BMR, which is their basal metabolic rate. That's the amount of calories that you burn. They measure their insulin. They measure their weight. They use blood tests, urine tests. They're, they're watching everything. And they compare two groups. Group one, which eats a diet of 48% carbohydrates and 36% fat, the rest being protein. And group two, who eats 77% fat, 6% carbohydrate, and the other rest being protein. All right. The crazy thing from this study is though the insulin response, which is Gary's big, you know, big thing, he talks about the insulin response of carbohydrates, although the insulin response is different, the actual weight loss of these two diets show no difference. Um, speculation here is because in a clinical setting, there is no... Um, Ability to cheat, no ability to overeat. Um, what Gary would say in rebuttal to these studies are you, by putting them in this situation, you're taking away the mental, um, the mental wherewithal to stick to a diet, whereas where I think that the low-carb diet may have a few benefits. But then after that... Um, a billion-dollar study, follow-up study, was done that followed 600 people that ate two different diets. And between the two macro breakdowns, uh, the high-carb or the low-carb, basically 
no difference is shown. And then he starts to get into some statistics. Wheat consumption in the United States is down 15 pounds per year, per individual. The average sugar consumption is down from 47 teaspoons. I don't remember the 47 teaspoons. This must be per day, right? Mm. Is down from 47 teaspoons to 38 teaspoons. We're fatter than we ever have been, and we're eating less wheat and less sugar. What's that uh, data based on when? Current? Um, This was, I think, in the last 20 years. Oh, wheat and sugar are down? Yes. Wheat and sugar consumption are down, and we are fatter than we ever have been. So we have an overeating problem, but it's not necessarily a macronutrient problem. Does that make sense? I think so. It's hard for me to believe that wheat and sugar are down. I know. And that's the thing. That's, that's, the, that's where I'm, I'm eating my lunch. I'm eating my proverbial lunch right now because we just did an entire episode on the Gary Taub's hypothesis. But these actual studies show that even though the hypothesis makes perfect sense, in application, the outcome is no different. So they then start to get into things like uh, calorie counts on menus. Okay, so studies show that calorie counts on menus reduce the calorie consumed in that meal. But the weird thing is, is then calorie consumption for the rest of the day goes up and you end up leveling out to the equal calories that you're eating on an average day anyways. New York tried this. They put they mandated that calorie count be on every single menu um, and has lost no weight overall as a population. Um, consistently throughout study after study after study after study, diets seem to work for about six months. Um, you lose weight, weight loss stalls, because weight loss stalls, um, majority of people get off the diet or they just stick to the diet. And within six months after that, most of the weight is gained back. So in a year, you've lost and gained a certain amount of weight. After this, we're going to look at the body's regulatory system and start to think about why that's the case. But first... Um, the book is really speculating that overeating is not the cause of the obese of obesity, but overeating is a symptom of a larger problem and obesity is a side effect of overeating. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, that's a valid point. So I will get into that, but first, um, first I want to talk about this, this part where they kind of side, they, they side story in the book and start and talk about pellagra. Have you ever heard of pellagra? No. Me neither. But you have heard of scurvy, right? Yeah. So scurvy is a nutrient deficiency of vitamin D or vitamin C, right? Yep. Okay. So pellagra in the early 1900s, late 1800s and early 1900s, nobody had any idea what pellagra was. Uh, Von Goethe, after escaping an emotional affair with a married woman in the middle of the night and traveling under an alias, started recording when he traveled through northern Italy that a lot of the people had brown, scaly skin. They were bone thin and they were showing signs of madness, like eating dirt. Um, it was storied that they, some people were attacking children. One man cut off his penis and threw it out the window. This, the, it was called pellagra is what they were suffering from. 
Pellegra generally started with farm families, spread throughout the region around springtime. It was it, it took over northern Italy in the late 1800s, and by the early 1900s, it showed up in the U.S. And about 19, I think it was 1907, it showed up in a rural farm in Georgia. By 1913, it had become an epidemic in the United States, and it was killing it was killing people left and right throughout the Bible Belt. This is when the United States started to study it. So little side story. This is why we need to make sure that studies are always replicated before we start to believe them. The first study that was done, they injected two monkeys with pellagra blood, both got pellagra and one died, right? This would show it's an infectious disease, right? Mm-hmm. Well, then when they tried to duplicate the study with 20 monkeys, none of them got it. So then this doesn't make sense. Is it infectious? Is it not infectious? The United States government sent out the top disease infectious expert and dispatched them to the, to the area to try to find the problem. He started an orphanage where 70 boys had the disease. Even though orphanages are notoriously dirty and unhygienic, they were told not to change a thing. All he did is put the boys on a prescription diet of buttermilk, eggs, peas, and beans. In the, by spring, all the boys had gotten better, and only one boy relapsed. So he then says this is a nutrient disease, a nutrient deficiency disease. Nobody wanted to listen to him. So he said, watch. In 1915, he convinced 12 convicts that they could get out if they followed a strict diet for six months. They followed the diet of biscuits, mush, cane syrup, coffee, gravy, and sugar. And in six months, six of the convicts have gotten pellagra. He thought by now this would establish the disease was a disease of nutrition, not an infection disease, but leading health officials still wouldn't listen. So to prove them wrong, he organized him and his wife and, and 14 of their friends, so 16 people total, they organized these dirty parties where 16 total volunteers would be injected with pellagra blood. They ate begged bread. Bread baked with cells from pellagra's patient's skin, urine, and diarrhea, and no one got it. Can, can you imagine your buddy comes to you and he's like, hey, so I got to prove this hypothesis that I have. And I'm pretty sure I'm right, but I need yeah. you to eat some diarrhea bread. <laughs> Must be a, like a college uh, experiment thing because I don't even know why anybody would volunteer for that. Right. So by 1917, it was clear that pellagra was a uh, nutrient deficiency. Uh, after a bunch of testing, they figured out that it was niacin, actually. It was a, it was a B3 deficiency. Um, by now, it had killed over 100,000 people. The, the United States, uh, deci- this, is, this is what caused the United States to start enriching flour, rice, and pasta. So they enriched it with niacin, riboflavin, thiamine, and one other um, drug i can't remember what it was so synthetic synthetic uh i mean yes synthetic but it's basically nutrient deficient white carbohydrates that are sprayed with nutrients instead of fixing the diet we're just giving you nutrients along with your carbohydrates yeah right um somehow this has caused the body to change in northern Italy, instead of enriching flowers and grains, they mandated that families raise rabbits for food, bake bread in commercial ovens, and drink more wine. In the early 1900s, wine was really dirty. It wasn't filtered, so it was filled with yeast, right? 
yeast is rich in niacin. So it worked. It worked slower, but it worked without altering the food supply. Now compare northern Italy. Their obesity rate is 8%. Compared to that of the Bible Belt of the United States, is 37%. And, you know, the initial thing is people want to think, well, Italy eats the Mediterranean diet, right? Northern Italy does not eat the Mediterranean diet. Northern Italy eats cheese, fat, butter, fried foods. The town of Bologna, where the name Bologna came from, is in northern Italy. They eat that, and they eat a ton of pasta, refined carbohydrates, all this kind of stuff. But their obesity rate is 8% compared to 37%. Right? What do they mean by refined carbohydrates? I thought that their wheat goes through a different process. It's still a refined carbohydrate. It's still, no, it's still, still, a, it's still, an, empty, it's still an empty carbohydrate. Okay. So yes, it does go through a different process. It is not, um, it's not as processed, but it's still, it's still a pretty nutrient deficient. It was nutrient deficient enough that it caused the same disease that it did here in the United States, hmm. right? Yeah. So they said add more f- things that could create that could contain these nutrients. They accidentally got it right with the wine, but they but they mandated to eat more things that c- contain more nutrients versus enriching the current diet with nutrients. So this starts to starts to question the evolutionary thrifty gene theory of obesity. And what the evolutionary thrifty gene theory of obesity is the one that you and I talk about all the time. This theory says that we evolved to eat everything we can get our hands on because food can become scarce and we have to eat it now. We then are in, a, are in a time of plenty, a plentiful time of food, and our system wants us to just constantly overeat, right? Yeah. That's, that's the evolutionary thrifty gene of obesity. Well, places like northern Italy, where Italian men have doubled their meat consumption since 1950, vegetable servings are down, olive oil usage is down, Italian women eat three times as much meat, four times as much dessert, and five times as much cheese since 1950, questions this theory well maybe it's genetic maybe they're just genetically better to eat that kind of stuff but when italian Amer- when italian italians migrate to america they tend to gain the same amount of weight as americans hmm. so four times the desserts four times the desserts right they're they're killing the game hmm. this is where we get into that last sentence that i made where the Book speculates that overeating is not a cause of obesity, but a symptom. So first, let's detour and look at our body temperature, right? So initially, what was thought in the early, early studies is that pleasure and pain are, I guess, stationary would be the right terminology. Yeah. So that was completely upended when someone decided to study what putting your hand in a bucket of cold water would be considered positive or negative depending on what your body temperature was, right? So if you were in a tub of cold water and you put your hand in a bucket of ice water, the average participant described this negatively, right? It was painful, it hurt, stuff like that. But... When in a tub of warm water or hot water and the body temperature was elevated and you put your hand in ice water, the water was described positively. 
So the body has internal regulated, regulate regulatory abilities on our body temperature to maintain that magic 98.6 number, right? Yeah. Our brain is a homeostasis genius. It finds the best way to get to the temperature that we want to get. We put clothes on, we take clothes off. We start to sweat, we take clothes off. We open windows. We start to get cold, we grab blankets. We put a sweatshirt on. We know that we can regulate ourselves. I mean, it's not, it's not a conscious thought, right? This comfort can even be valued with money when they took st- when they took participants and asked them to sit in front of a cold fan and then they gave them an amount of money to sit for a certain amount of time. The brain would actually calculate how much that pain of sitting in front of that fan was worth because they would sit longer with the more amount of money that was offered. So these things are all our, our body and our brain calculate these things when it comes to temperature so what about food does our brain start to calculate these things compared on food so that's what one researcher decided to study so he took fasted participants so they're fasted for 12 hours okay so they're hungry they gave them a toffee single toffee and asked them to rate the taste of the toffee started out rating it as delicious right They kept giving them toffees continuously at a period of time. The toffees eventually became rated as just okay. And then by the end of this, as this original study, the participants couldn't stand toffee. Right? Oh, I suppose, yeah. So they're thinking, well, how do we make it so that this is not, how do we get rid of the, the, the fact that it could just be that they're getting sick of the flavor of toffee? Right? So the next study did the same thing, but with sugar water. Half of the participants drank the sugar water. Half of the participants gargled the sugar water and spit it out. And then they were asked to rate the pleasurability or the, or the deliciousness of the sugar water, right? They're fasted again. The people that drank the sugar water followed the same tendency as the toffee people. The people that that gargled the sugar water and spit it out, it was considered pleasurable or delicious the entire duration of the study. Hmm. So when the body got to a certain calorie level, it regulated the taste of the food, the sugar water, right? It regulated the pleasurability of the sugar water to say, oh, this isn't really pleasurable anymore to make it so you don't keep eating it. Isn't that shit wild? That's so weird. The body is so fucking smart. The brain is so smart. So, one step past this, the study participant, um, not the study participant, this is is now the guy that was doing the studies, got two of his colleagues, and they started by smelling a glass of orange syrup and then drinking a glass of 200-calorie water the orange syrup was considered pleasurable. It considered they, 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 they rated it as smelling pleasurable before they drank the 200 calories of water. They then consumed 200 calories of water and smelled the orange syrup again, and it lost its pleasurability. Hmm. They then went on a vigorous weight loss diet. 
lost eight to 10% of their body weight. So one of, one of the guys was 145 pounds. He went down to 130, no, he was 150 pounds. He went down to 137 pounds. Jesus, tiny. Tiny, right? Here's the fucking wild part of this study. After losing all that weight, they redid the orange syrup in the water study. The orange syrup continually smelled pleasurable after the 200 calories of water. Hmm. So just the just the loss in body weight changed the way that their pleasure centers interpreted the smell of a glass of orange syrup. You want to get wilder yet? Yeah. They, they then were allowed to eat whatever they wanted. Slowly after a few weeks, they came back up to their original body weight. Right? They find their original body weight again. And they redid the calorie study. Or the, sorry, the orange syrup study. And the orange syrup lost its pleasurability after the 200 calorie water. Once they were back up to their normal body weight. Body weight seems to have the same internal regulatory system as our temperature. This is why diets work for a little while and then they fizzle out. So a follow-up study was done on this, done what this one by Jules Hirsch. Jules Hirsch put obese participants on a drastic, okay, a drastic 600 calorie diet. That's crazy, 600 calories a day. Collectively, over six months, all the participants lost hundreds of pounds. The weird thing is, is they started to experience the weirdest mind alterations, things that would be considered madness. And this is where I got to go to, this is where we're going to get kind of wonky because I got to go back to my paper notes because I didn't have that much time to type all of my notes back up. But isn't 600 calorie massive deficiency? Isn't that gonna yes, they drive call this, you kind of crazy? They call this semi-starvation. The, yeah. But but the thing is though, is all of these mental changes were observed in the participants post study. So they were back to eating whatever they wanted. So what do you mean? The these all these uh, all these uh, results were based after the study was over, and they're back to eating normal. They're back to eating normal, so they are not in a starvation state. Their brain still thinks that they are in a semi-starvation state because they had lost all of this weight to the point of some people were chewing forty packs of gum a day. They were waking up in the middle of the night with dreams about food. They they would want to look at pictures of their body with distorted lenses so that it made them look like they looked prior. Hmm. That's pretty odd. These things are observed in starvation studies. The crazy thing is, oh, it's called semi-starvation neurosis. These things are observed in starvation studies. The weird thing is, is in this study, they were observed after when these people were not in a semi-starvation state anymore. They could eat whatever they wanted. Hmm. After a year of tracking, um, basically most of these people went, were back to their regular weight, right? Yep. So then they decided to track simple calorie consumption of just some normal everyday people. These are not obese people and these are not people that are trying to lose weight, right? Yeah. This is just 
365 days of calorie intake tracking. No difference. Now, the weird thing is, is there, there is a little bit of um, tracking bias that happens when you track something, you seem to regulate it. But I believe if I remember right, they tried to tell these people, like, don't change what you're eating. We just want to know what you're eating. Okay. What this showed in these people is they would have huge spikes in calorie intake, followed by many days of decreased calorie intake, and then huge spikes of calorie intake, and then many days of decreased calorie intake, to the point that like one lady had had a few days during the holidays when she was at like 3,700 calories a day, and then at the end of the year, gained no statistical weight. It was like within a pound of what she weighed when she started the study 365 days ago. Jeez. So the body regulates the, the body weight, which is one thing that we need to realize when we're talking about people trying to lose weight is your body does not want to be lighter than it is. It wants to find, <clears throat> excuse me, it wants to find homeostasis. So this is where Kevin Hall decides to study 153 subjects with a drug that diverts sugar into the urine. Okay. So by giving them this drug, it stops their calories or their sugar calories from being burned. It just diverts sugar straight into the urine to the tune of about 300 calories a day. Okay, so if you simply reduce your calorie intake by 300 calories a day, you should see a loss of about 25 pounds a year. The weird thing here is, is everyone ate about 350 calories more per day to make up for the calories lost to sugar into their urine. Hmm. Weird, That's right? Odd, yeah. So this, these are all examples of how our body regulates its size and how much smarter our body is than what we understand. Um, same guy, Kevin Hall, decided to work with The Biggest Loser. You remember The Biggest Loser show? Yeah. Okay. So he went and worked with all these people that were on The Biggest Loser. And he started to measure their basal metabolic rate after they lost um, all that weight. And the calculation of, right, so it, it takes a lot less calories to operate a 200-pound body than it takes to operate a 400-pound body, right? Yeah. Does that make sense? Yep. So that calculation should average out to about, on average, statistically average, 250 calories less um, per day that these people should be uh, burning on average because of their loss in body weight, the adaptation, the persistent metabolic adaptation had made it. So these people were actually burning about 500 calories less when studied. So their system had downregulated by twice as much as it should have just to try to maintain some of its body mass. So, now we get into met metabolic adaptation. Um, metabolic adaptation is basically your body, your body's metabolism changing to try to find that homeostasis, right? 
So metabolic adaptation works both ways. Um, Ethan Sims, a researcher, I can't remember where he's from, tried to fatten his lab mice. He had to force feed them to get them to overeat. And he was, it was, it was really dra- It was really hard to get his mice to overeat. So he thought, well, how, how do I study this in humans? So he went to inmates again and he got a bunch of inmates to sign up for this study where they were, they had to eat a, I think it was like a 10,000 calorie surplus and a, more, a majority of them just dropped out. No. Like they couldn't do it. Basically food just became disgusting to them Yeah, because they were, they, they, their body wanted to maintain its specific homeostatic, homeostatic place. We see this with the Masa tribe. The Masa tribe. We got your tribe in. Got my tribe in. Um, in the Masa tribe, uh, being fat is considered wealthy. You are you are a you are a boss. You are you are wealthy. You are well to do. The fatter you are, the better, right? So males generally go through this period of time, and I can't remember what they called it, but they eat. 10,000 to 20,000 calories a day. They sit in their hut. All they do is eat every two hours for 18 hours a day and they defecate and they milk cows. That's it. On average, they put 60 to 75 pounds on in a short period of time. That's crazy. The crazy thing is after this ritual, after about six months, they're all back to the same body weight they were hmm. because they had to force themselves to get that fat. Yeah. That doesn't make sense. So that means somebody should be uh, forcing themselves to get extremely fat to lose weight. It, that's what you would think, right? Hmm. So all, all of this, all of this info that I've given you here so far is just to show you that our body knows what it's doing our body wants to sit at a healthy weight and something else is causing specifically the american population but kind of the the world population that has assumed whatever the problem that started in america they have taken it over it has hijacked the metabolic adaption of our brain and it is making us overeat are you talking about maybe chemical uh, additives to our food? Yes. I am talking about flavor additives. Dextrose. Artificial sweeteners. Artificial fats. Anything that does not align the food with what our brain is tasting. So how do we start to, how do we get to that? Right. So we just we took a big leap. We took a leap from our body wants to be a healthy weight. Our body is not a healthy weight. Why? Why is it? Um, all right. Um, this is where we get into the, I guess, the malleability of human taste. Right. So we think that something that's sweet tastes sweet. Right. Yeah. Something that's enjoyable is enjoyable. But where we started to question that is 
when we looked at some some really weird things from around the world. So there is a tribe in India that live in this area where their water is so heavily fluoridated that it it can it causes cows, it causes bison, it causes some humans to basically die of of fluoride poisoning. Because fluoride at a small amount is I don't think it's good for you, but fucking human health researchers think it's okay, and it creates no. a a, a la- layer of, uh, I guess, enamel on your teeth, right? But in these areas, the fluoride, the water is so overly fluoridated that it should be killing people. But when they test these people, they seem to be healthy, and they figured out that these people consume an oddly large amount of tamarind you ever had tamarind yeah okay so if you had bitter tamarind or sweet tamarind sweet tamarind okay these people eat an oddly large amount of bitter tamarind Hmm. so when they tested the taste of these people yeah they considered bitter a pleasurable taste oh so their brains have been trained for bitter to be pleasurable to get them to eat more bitter tamarind because tamarind actually has some traits that uh, pull fluoride out of the body. Well, So taste is so malleable that they were able to isolate specific areas like that in the world where taste would give you a, a advantage over your environmental system, right? So then we start to look at, well, if taste is malleable, then why are we, why do we think everything tastes so good? Why are we overeating? And we start to speculate it's a dopamine issue, right? So they start to test rats, um, figure out that the dope, where the dopamine centers are in the rats, and then they start to pleasure the rats with dopamine responses in their brain, electrical stimulation to the dopamine areas of their brain, and train them to um, go to certain areas in their in their cage um, to the point that if they would continuously stimulate these rats, they would stay in the wrong corner of their cage to the point that they would miss sleep, they would miss food, they would stimulate themselves with dopamine until they die. Hmm. So is it a dopamine issue we have? Well, we figured out that it wasn't dopamine specifically. It was a combination of dopamine, which is the wanting system, and the secondary system, which is the pleasure system. So... System two is the liking system. So that's when we started to figure out that the food issue that we have is more like a craving, more like gambling or an addiction, than it really is uh, an enjoyment issue of the food that we're eating. Okay? Now we go back to my regular notes where this is where it starts. This is where my mind started to get blown. All right. So now we're starting to look at why, what is fucking up the system? How, how are we overeating so much 
and it starts with one researcher has these mice that are genetically engineered not to taste sweetness. Okay. Yeah. So they, they they get zero dopamine response from sweet because they don't taste sweet. They're given three water tube options. One is straight water. One is water with sugar. And one is water that's with even more sugar, higher sugar content of water. Right. Yeah. So even though these mice are oblivious to sweetness, they randomly lick around the tubes for the first six or seven days. But by day seven, they were deliberately drinking sugar water with the same volume and frequency as mice that were not genetically engineered not to taste sugar. Isn't that weird? So even though they can't taste sugar, their body can sense that there's calories in those in those in that water okay yeah so the researchers started to measure the part of the brain that figured out which tube to go to the dorsal striatum and the dopamine system the dopamine regulated whether the mouse needed calories and if it needed calories it sent the mouse to the tube with the calories but the mice who were sweet blind showed no signs of enjoyment uh when when the mice that were not um blind to sweetness when they would get the sweet water they would all right back to so sorry we're back we had a little uh little detour there for a second so the the mice that were not sweet blind would actually show signs of pleasure they would lick their paws they would open their mouth it's all these things that they know that that mice do the signs that the mice that were sugar blind would drink just as much sugar water but they didn't enjoy it at all they were like little robots the next study gave used normal mice but they had two options of tubes one one option was a calorie free sweetener water so it was sweet but zero calories and one tube was a bitter liquid but when the mouse drank it it got an injection of sugar into its belly mice eventually gave up on the calorie free water and drank the bigger bitter concoction that gave them calories rules of taste are not hardwired they're just a cue okay so these mice similar to the tribes that ate the the bitter tamarind learned that bitter equaled calories and the brain completely rewired to make them go to the tube that had the bitter calories or the bitter. Mm. Yeah. The bitter calories, the system's adaptive, right? Yeah. Still stuck on the sour tamarind. Why? I don't know. That's, it's a ingredient. I mean, that's used a lot in Indian food and Thai food. Yeah. Oh, for some weird reason going through my head it's like how many obese uh, eastern Indian and uh, Thai folks do I know <laughs> I'm just like I don't know any well I don't think it has it doesn't have any the tamarind is just an example of a bitter food that becomes beneficial and and the people consider it tasty yeah because it's beneficial so that's where the that's where the tamarind comes in yeah right it's it's showing just like this just like this one showed with the bitter water um, that the system is adaptive. Okay. Okay. So new research. This one is where, this one is where it starts to get real fucking weird. This woman can't remember her name. Didn't put it in my notes. I apologize. Sets up five drinks. Okay. All five drinks taste different, but they're all sweetened to the same exact level with sucralose. So zero calories, right? Taste the same. They have zero calories. Then 
she adds five different levels of maltodextrin. So maltodextrin is a taste-free calorie additive, okay? So she ha- she's got all these different beverages. They are sweetened to the same level, so they taste the same amount of sweetness, but they contain all different levels of calories from zero up to 150. She introduces all the participants to these five different beverages, gives them samples so that their brain is able to learn the calorie content comparative to the flavor, okay? And then she measures the dopamine response which each, with each of the beverages. Yeah. She expected the dopamine response to be in correlation with the caloric content of the drink, right? Yeah. The dopamine response elevated all the way up to 75 calories and then after 75 calories went back down. The 150 calorie, which what you would think would create the most dopamine, did not. Why did the 75 calorie create the most dopamine? Well, it turns out the level of sucralose that she used to sweeten all of these drinks would have correlated with 75 calories worth of sugar. The brain knew that at 75 calories, the level of sweetness matched the amount of calories that you were getting. And that's where it created the highest elevation dopamine. Hmm. She then tested the thermic effect. So the thermic effect would be the amount of elevated thermogenesis from metabolism that you get from the amount of calories that you're consuming. Okay? Yeah. So she brings them in. She puts people on the 75-calorie drink. She measures their thermic effect. The thermic, the thermic effect spikes. It shows that after the calories consumed, the system's biology upregulates metabolism. You create a bunch of heat, and then it goes back down. It's just a spike in the chart, basically, that shows that you burn some calories, right? Which is exactly what is expected. She lets them go, get back to baseline. You can't just do the next one right away. Come back a week later, she gives them the 150-calorie drink. She expected to see a similar or elevated thermogenic effect right? Because it's twice as much calories. So you would think that your body would upregulate your metabolism twice as much. Yeah. Not only was it not twice as much, the body did not burn any calories. Hmm. There was no thermogenic effect. So the body is drinking the calories. The calories are going into the system. The sugar is hitting your bloodstream and your body is doing nothing with that sugar. It is not burning it. It is not elevating your metabolism. It is not using it as energy. It is just circulating as blood sugar constantly. Which should jack your blood sugar up, though. Which would jack your blood sugar up. This is all based on the maltodextrin sitting in this the This is all uh, based on water, the maltodextrin. Which is highly, highly processed. Yes. So, what are the long-term effects of this? Well, insulin sensitivity was tested with three different drinks. One was sugar, one was zero calories, and one where the calories of the beverage did not match the level of sweetness. Only the beverage where the level of calories did not match the level of sweetness caused impaired insulin sensitivity. 
So her next study that she wants to do, and she gets approved, is she wants to fed mismatched calorie drinks, okay? So this is where the calories in the drink do not match the level of sweetness in the drink, and she wants to feed them to teens. Teens are extremely calorically hungry because there's so much development happening and they're changing so fast that changes are witnessed in teens way quicker than in full-grown adults. She gets approval. She starts giving these kids these mismatched beverages. Mind you, when they were asked whether they like the beverages, they barely enjoyed them. These were not like super tasty beverages. These were just beverages that they were drinking to be part of this study, okay? Barely after the study starts, they draw blood from three teens to look at what's happening. Two of the three teens initially tested showed signs of prediabetes to the point that an ethics board looked at the results and deemed the study unsafe to continue. This completely upends the calorie and hyper palatable food um, being the demon that pointed at our obesity. Hypercaloric foods may not be the problem at all. The big question is why were humans generally able to resist vast amounts of calories up until about 50 years ago? In this research, we see the beginning of an answer. Throughout evolution, a creature's taste was a reliable signal of what's coming in the digestive system. No creature has 40 minutes to sit and digest a meal so its brain can determine whether it's had enough calories. The system depends on accuracy. And the research that is in this book starts to show that what happens when taste and smell can no longer be accurately predicted to what's being consumed. Um, They then go on to make a gambling comparison, which I'm not going to try to make because... I barely understood it enough to understand it, let alone try to teach you. But basically, it's saying that the risk of being short of food or the risk of losing money is what makes you gamble or what makes you overeat. Not necessarily, it's the uncertainty, not the um, not the not the loss of food or the gain of food. It's the uncertainty of food, and. Psychological? It's psychological, basically. Um, Almost like a, what, a hoarder or what? Your body uh, becomes a hoarder if you are psychologically think that you're not getting enough food or you're going to run out? If, you're, if, if your brain can no longer trust its sensors that would tell it how much food is coming in. Yeah. Okay. The, when, it, when it can no longer trust its sensors, its default mode is to upregulate all of your consumption to try to gain as much as possible because evolutionarily, whether you were getting calories or not getting calories, it knew what to do. Mm-hmm. But when it was questioned the best basis programming would be to eat more. Hmm. Yeah, there, there's where... So, they started to see this um, 
where with monkeys, they tested, they were shown three pictures to a group of monkeys, right? And the dopamine response was measured. A box, just a picture of a black box, with came with no concentrated black currant juice, okay? So no dopamine response, right? A picture of three bars, which was guaranteed to have black currant juice, also showed virtually no dopamine response. But then an X, which was the uncertainty, sometimes the X came with a reward, sometimes the X didn't come with a reward, this showed the highest dopamine response. So if you think about that, the uncertainty turned the brain on, turned the wanting systems, which is dopamine. Dopamine is the wanting system. It's not the enjoyment system. It's the wanting system. The uncertainty turned the, the wanting system on in these monkeys, right? Yeah. So the brain keeps track of a behavior. If it's a gain, then the gain is remembered. If a behavior has no gain, then it's also remembered and it's, and it's learned that that, gain, that that behavior has no gain. But when a gain is uncertain, the brain's default setting is to ramp up motivation, work harder, and strive more because the evolutionary evolution favors winners. Think about this at, with things in your life, like a walk button on the side of a road or an elevator call button or a closed door button. When you hit these buttons, how do you hit them? You hit them a few times? Sometimes, yeah. Right? I mean, I know I do, especially the closed door button, which most of the time in elevators, the closed door button does nothing. (laughs) I hit it, and I hit it like five times, right? So it's maybe the impatience? I don't know. (laughs) No. So so this is the uncertainty. This has been showed in a ton of gambling research. You're uncertain that the doors are going to close? You're you're uncertain whether this button is going to actually do anything. Okay? Now, compare this to your light switch in this room. When you walk in, do you hit that light switch and then hit it three times? No. No, you hit it once and it's done, right? Yeah. No dopamine response. Hmm. So does uncertainty, so uncertainty works in the brain. Does uncertainty work for food? So eight, eight gerbils were put into a super abundant food environment. One bowl was crammed with thousands of seeds and next to it was a bowl with 200 seeds, but it was mixed in with the sand. So the gerbils had to dig out the seeds, right? Yeah. So halfway through this experiment, they, they watched them for half the first half of the experiment and just watched them and cataloged everything they were doing. Halfway through the experiment, they woke up to a completely different environment. One bowl was completely empty. The other bowl was filled with 150 seeds and a ton of sand, so they had to dig to get the food. Uh, they kept changing the environment. The bowls would be empty. The bowls would be moved. The bowls would have food. The bowls would have no food. They would have to work for food. Basically, they created an uncertain environment, right? Yeah. The effect was clear. When food became unpredictable, the gerbils ate more than the first half when the food was guaranteed. The weird thing is, is food was never scarce. There was always enough food to feed the amount of gerbils that were in the, the container. It was just an uncertain pattern. It was an uncertain pattern that caused them to overeat. How does that apply to people? I'm trying to think of the, the people that I know that are in the obesity situation. So the, we, we have to go further because right now you're thinking of uncertainty with the uncertainty of food and food scarcity. Yeah. Okay. We don't have that. Nope. Yet. But think about the, don't think about food. Think about nutrition. 
Okay. We have an uncertain nutritional supply. The food that you eat for your next meal may completely match the flavor profile that your mouth tastes as far as the calories that you're getting, mm-hmm. or it may be completely ass backwards compared to the, what, your cal- what your mouth is tasting, right? Mm-hmm. This is because of food additives, artificial sweeteners, artificial fats. In 1949, a patent for an ice cream stabilization chemical was started. This was one of the first of tens of thousands of food additives that we have added to our food. Um, For thousands of years, sweetness was a signal of the calories incoming. And now that we have modified food, sweet, savory, all these taste signals are no longer trustworthy. So, Soothie Swithers takes these mice, right? Oh, rats, sorry. And she's feeding them a sweet rat chow along with a yogurt for every meal, okay? The yogurt tasted different, which each day sweetened and not. Half the rats got sugar-sweetened yogurt when it was sweet, and the other half the rats got calorie-free sweetened yogurt when it was sweet. So every, every single meal, the food is sweet, and the yogurt is sometimes sweet, sometimes not sweet, okay? Follow? Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay, so sometimes the sweet had calories, sometimes the sweet didn't have calories for the first half of the group. For the second half of the group, every time they had sweet food, that sweet food had calories. Okay? Yep. The rats intermittently giving calorie-free sweetener ate the most and gained the most. So they overate versus the mice who or the rats every time they were given something sweet, it was just tasted sweet. Lots of food, having enough food to eat is not what cranks up overeating. Uncertainty in the food that's coming into your stomach is what causes overeating. Hmm. Hard one to correlate here. Think about all the foods that we eat right now. You know, we eat Halo Top ice cream. That tastes like it should have a thousand calories in a half a pint, and it's really only got three hundred calories. Yeah. We eat Oiko's triple zero yogurt that tastes like it should have one hundred and sixty calories, but it has zero calories. And we eat Quest bars, and we eat artificial. We drink artificial sweetened energy drinks and artificially sweetened soft drinks, and we drink artificially sweetened um, electrolyte drinks. We drink all of this. We drink all of these drinks and eat all of these foods where the calories that we are consuming do not correlate with the signals that our brain is getting. This is the uncertainty that is causing the average American to overeat food. It's not an uncertainty of whether I will have food for my next meal. It's an uncertainty of the amount of nutrition that is in the food that I'm consuming every single time I eat. So how does that correlate with the folks that are eating a ton of, or just addicted to carbs? I'm trying to think of the eating patterns of the folks that I know that are struggling with weight. Okay. A lot of empty carbohydrates. Yep. Okay. Here's the, 
Here's one that tells you with that, okay? Okay. Do you remember... Oh, what the fuck was the name of this thing? Olestrol? Olestra. Olestra. Yeah. You remember Olestra? It's an oil. It was an oil. It was actually... The, the the taste profile and the mouthfeel of Olestra was actually considered more like more enjoyable than real fat. Okay. Yeah. So there were men that were forced, not forced, they were asked to eat. Uh, half the group ate normal fat filled biscuits in the morning. Yeah. The other half ate. Olestra biscuits that were 300 calories less than the fat-filled biscuits. So I don't remember what the total calorie count was, but let's say uh, 600 calories worth of regular biscuits um, in the morning versus a group that ate 300 calories less biscuits. Okay? The brain was taught that fat was no longer trustworthy, so it was driven to eat more throughout the day in carbohydrates. Yeah. Oh, man. So that's starting to make sense because the whole Illustra story, I mean, it's still, it's not banned here in the U.S. So there is thousands of fake fats. We just, they keep it very under the radar compared to fake sugar. We know fake sugar, right? Yeah. We know sucralose. We know aspartame. We know xylitol. We know all the names of the fake sugars. Do you know what simplest this this fake uh this fake fat is labeled on? It's labeled milk protein. The Okay. So basically forms of like let's say Olestra. Cause that shit's in like potato chips. It's in a ton of snack foods. A lot yeah. of people that think that Ritz crackers. I was just getting an argument with somebody the other day about, you know, because they, they like Ritz crackers and uh I don't know what the other Cracker like that's called the wheat thins too and all that crap. That stuff is all in there. Yep. And it's it's in there to the point that we can't look at a label and know that it's in there. The the cream fiber seven thousand, which which is one of these fake fats. Yeah. On a label, it's literally just labeled citrus fiber. Citrus fiber. Yeah. Sounds healthy, right? Jeez. Yeah, the, that shit's in everything. The Yogurt. picture. The picture is clear. Yeah. The defining factor of America's problem with food is nutritive mismatch. The food that you're eating, the flavor profile of the food that you're eating, the mouth signals that you are sending your brain does not match what is hitting your stomach. And food has become a calorie casino and it's goading into into a game that we can't resist and it's killing us. Now, this is only half the story. We're an hour in, and I still have to finish the rest of the book. We have a different, totally different podcast for you guys next week. It's going to be a great one. Um, but then the week after that, actually, it may be next week. We might just put out the second half of this next week and then hold that other one for the week after. That way we can get back ahead of the game for the Christmas season. Yeah. Um, I think that's what we should do. So next week... We'll do a follow-up, and I will finish this. But the biggest takeaway right now is just to realize, guys, that processed foods, whether it be a processed carbohydrate, a processed fat, flavor added to 
anything that is not supposed to be in there is causing food uncertainty and is causing us to overeat. That is the cause of causation of overeating. Not that we are, the, the carbohydrate overeating is not the demon. The fat overeating is not the demon. Overeating is the demon and overeating is a symptom of the base problem and the base problem is the nutritive mismatch. Yeah, now that's starting to make sense. And that that's what I that's that was my kind of caveat before I started this. I knew that I had too much information here that it was going to go around about in three or four different circles before we got to the end. But that is the main point to take away from this. Overeating is a symptom of nutritive mismatch. It doesn't matter what you're overeating. The macronutrient is not the problem. Your willpower is not the problem. Your taste completely changes depending on what your brain wants you to do. So for the, for the, same, exact, the same exact meal can come out to Martin and can come out to Felicia and can come out to Bob. The same exact meal. And Martin can think that that meal is moderately palatable and eat through half of it before he thinks he's full. Felicia cannot really like anything on it at all and eat just enough to get through to her next meal. And Bob, who is completely uncertain, his brain is completely uncertain, that can be the best tasting meal that he's ever had and he'll consume the whole thing and lick the plate. Which is now 500 calories more than he should have had for the day. Now do that over and over and over and over and over again, and that's 50 calories a year. Or 50 pounds a year, sorry. Do that over and over and over again, and that's 50 pounds per year that you'll gain by overeating 500 calories a day. Yeah. Wow. Makes sense. Okay. If you have any questions about that, don't email me, because I don't know if I can answer them, because I'm... (laughs) My head is still spinning. I had to call a buddy of mine um, on the way here because we talk about a lot of biohacking, a lot of nutrition stuff. And I'm like, dude, and he's a he's an anesthesiologist. Great dude. Super intelligent. And I'm like, have you heard of this nutritive mismatch? He's like, no, but I'm Googling it right now. <laughs> and he started reading. I'm like, I'm sending you my notes. Like, we need to talk about this. This shit is wild. I've never even heard of this before. And the studies and the science makes perfect sense that this is the underlying issue, which I think this is one of those things where this shows us, but I think we already knew, right? We talk about, we need to eat more whole foods and less processed foods. Yeah. Right. We all know it for me. It made me think of my parents. My dad will sit down and have a diet Pepsi and a snack, right? Yeah. So every time he, every time he has that diet Pepsi, that should be 150 calories, but it's zero calories, and he has that snack, what's happening to the calories from that snack? They're just getting stored as fat. Yeah. Gosh, man. I mean, there's so many people I know that aren't, sometimes they say they're health conscious, but I can think of when they plan for events, you know, whether they go camping, where they go somewhere, the, the first thing that they worry about is the damn snacks. Or sometimes uh, for us, when we talk, we're just worried about getting our protein in every three and a half hours. Yeah. 
You know, we're not worried about making sure we're packing bags and bags and bags of snacks before an event. Well, yeah, and, and that's fine. Like, snacks are fine, but whole food snacks. Not, right. like, I'm, I am, this, this one is blowing my mind because I eat a ton of fake fucking sugar. I do. I eat a ton of stevia. What? Oh. I have, I have a ton of stevia, you know, multiple drinks that I drink during the day I thought were healthy because they were zero calorie electrolyte drinks that I was trying to rebalance my electrolyte system because I sweat my ass off in the morning at the gym. Well, they got sucralose in them? No, there's stevia, but it still doesn't matter. The calories don't match the sweetness. Yeah. Quest bars. Halo Top ice cream. All of this shit. You're trying to make a healthier alternative, a healthier choice, but what you're doing is actually causing more uncertainty in your brain and causing more nutritive mismatch. Jeez. Does that mean you're going to go to Culver's after this and pile down a peanut no, I butter got, and whatever you got? I think I got tacos at home. I got tacos <laughs> waiting for me at home. But, all right, we will, I'll follow this up, and we'll come back and, and wrap it up with, with how to improve this. Is there any positive insight what else is in the book and all the shit that you guys email me about over the week got anything else oh pretty interesting all right peace